Hello, everybody, and welcome to Politics in a Movie with your hosts, Doug and Mike. I'm Doug. And I'm Mike. And this week's episode, The Electoral College and Goodwill Hunting. As usual, Mike, I'd like to give a quick call out to Frenchie. Thank you, Frenchie, for all your help and assistance over these grueling episodes. So, Mike, I'm excited to jump into a popular, an up-and-coming popular segment we have, listener comments. Oh, good. Great. And uh, let's uh, let's ask Frenchie to start piping in some. I'll let, uh, I'll let you handle the first one. Okay. From Lake House 12, your heads should be bigger. <laughs> head should be bigger. You know, I, uh, what popped in my head, maybe our pictures on the web page or our album cover, our podcast cover. Oh. Although I could interpret it as you and I really should be more confident. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe we should be more know. cocky. All right. So, so either we have to be more cocky or we've got to enlarge those headshots of ours. <laughs> on the web page. On the web page. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, thank um, you for that comment. Yeah. All right. Here's Link another uh, from Johnson 11. What was the connection between term limits and the matrix? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I guess in our one of our previous episodes, we didn't make it clear. You know, in general, Mike, we do have, uh, uh, albeit it may be a um, tenuous connection. There's a, usually a connection between our political topic and film. But The Matrix, uh, I guess our topic, our connection there was that uh, in The Matrix, Neo was a, uh, a reoccurring savior for the humans. And, uh, you know, after... After he was done with his job, years later, there'd be another one. So he had, uh, he sort of had a, t uh, a term limit. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Frenchie, hit us. I think we have one more to fit in this episode. Okay. This is from Maureen. She says, I literally was smiling as I walked down the street as I was listening. Can't wait to listen to another one. Oh, that's very nice. Oh, it's yeah. always good. Yeah. It's always good when Frenchie gives us the nice ones. <laughs> thank you, Maureen. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, keep on listening. So, uh, so hey, Mike, why don't we um, jump into your, your meaty sure. topic? Sure. The Electoral College, uh, as you know, you know, it's, it's kind of unwieldy. It's a really big discussion, and it's been talked about a lot, especially in recent years, with the, you know certain elections that we've had, previous elections in the 2000s, starting with Al Gore, where the candidate with the most popular votes did not win. The, the Electoral College is set up in such a way that it hasn't happened often, but has happened with some frequency in recent years where the candidate with the most popular vote, more people in the country voted for that candidate, yet the candidate did not win the Electoral College and thus did not win the election. Yeah, um, that seems interesting. How? When did this, uh, was the Electoral College, was that thing always around or did it pop up at a certain year? Or? You know, in 1787-ish, when we were moving from the original government that we had, the Articles of Confederation, to our current government, the founders met and and they talked about a lot of things. And, you know, it, it's funny, um, if you're a fan of Hamilton, 
you know, hmm. uh, the, the uh, musical, yeah. uh, they talked about this. And there was an election in 1800, uh, one of the earliest presidential elections where the vote, the electoral college tied and uh, the uh, the vote went into the House of Representatives, which is how it's written into the con- in this Constitution. Right. Um, and the House of Representatives cho- chose Thomas Jefferson over Aaron Burr. As you know from Hamilton, Aaron Burr had a duel with Hamilton and <laughs> shot him. Pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? So this is a contentious thing, and it got personal, you know. I don't yeah. know if it was the Electoral College. I think it was a lot more than that. But but this is has been a discussion in our country for quite a long time. Uh, I think it originally, when the Constitutional Convention met, it was a compromise so that the larger states, the most populist states, would not uh, dominate, and right. that it was a it was sort of a bone thrown to the smaller states, rural states, that had less population, and so rather than you know if it, if it was a strictly popular election then yeah, sure, most of the population are in these large, more populous states. Right. And so uh, they dominate over the smaller states. So that was sort of the thought behind that. Yeah, but, and I guess, you know, when all that was going on, you know, there wasn't uh, an easy way for a lot of people to communicate. That's and, true. Um, and when they were getting their news or yeah, reading information, it was all very localized. That's a good point. I mean, you can think of why can't we just do a direct popular election? Because we all have the same information at this point. We all know the candidates. We all know, you know, you would, I know we get our news from different sources now, but you would think, you know, one person, one vote, you know, that that should be how it works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, You know, no one's at a disadvantage, um, you know, living, living in the Midwest now, they, they have, and their fingertips at all the information that you know everyone else has. Yeah, I'm feeling in favor of a direct popular election. Well, what uh, would that take? Like, how would that ever come about? It's tough. They'd have to, you know, uh, it would have to be a constitutional amendment, which of course requires, you know, a vote in the Congress and then yeah. ratification by all of the states. Yeah, those things are hard. Those amendment yeah. things—they're really, really <laughs> hard. They are. Uh, when was the last time we had an amendment? Gee, uh, maybe it was the... Um... I think this is a special mission for Frenchie. <laughs> we'll let him noodle on that. Yeah, we'll let us that. know, Frenchie. Yeah, so so this Electoral College, the way that it's set up, is sort of similar to Congress, where states are assigned electoral... What are they called? Electors. Mm-hmm. And it's similar to the way Congress is set up, so... You get an elector for each of your senators, and you get an elector for each of your members of the House. So, you know, small states that don't have a lot of people, they still get those two Senate representatives. Right. You know, I mean, and, and you know, Montana that has more cattle than people, <laughs> uh, you know, has uh, the same, those same two electoral votes and same two senators. Um, and then, of course, you know, I think Montana may have one member in the House of Representatives, I don't know, or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas New York or California, California is probably a better example. They've got, you know, like, well, I think one fifth of the country lives in California, you know. So, you know, they obviously have more 
members in the House, and they've got more uh, electors to the Electoral College. So their influence would be outsized if it were a direct popular vote because there's more people in California than there are in, again, I'll use Montana as, as an example. But, you know, we already account for that with our election to Congress, you know, and how states and individuals are represented in Congress with two senators and then uh, a House of Representatives based on population. So why do that again in our election of the president? You know, why not just have a direct popular election? And again, I'd like to keep this kind of simple, this discussion, because it is so complex. I feel like we could go on and on. It almost is more suited to a panel of people since it's just you and me. (laughs) But um. But you know, let's let's talk about it, and that's that's sort of the history of the Electoral College, and then the recent history is that, which I mentioned earlier, in two thousand, Gore and Bush virtually tied, and then Gore had a larger uh, popular vote than than Bush, and uh, there was a challenge in Florida because of the, some of the problems with the ballots particularly, I think, in Palm Beach County, that ended up with a suit in the the Florida Supreme Court made a decision, and then that went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, their decision ended up pretty much giving Bush the election, even though Gore had more popular vote. And then in 2016, we had uh, Hillary Clinton against uh, Donald Trump, and Hillary Clinton beat Trump in a popular vote by 3 million votes. Right. But his electoral college vote was a landslide where he got 306 electoral college versus her, I think, 232. Right. And in 2020, Trump ran for re-election. And this time it flipped and Biden got those same or not probably not the same exact votes, but the same number, 306 electoral votes, which was a landslide in the Electoral College. But he also received something like 81 million popular votes, which is the the largest that any presidential candidate has ever received. But I will qualify that with Trump received 774 million roughly popular votes, which is the largest uh, number of votes that a sitting president has ever received, even right. though it was, you know, 10 million or so less than Biden. So, yeah. And so that was uh, that was one of the that last election was a case where the person won both sets. Yes. The, uh, electoral and the. And, the and that's been the case throughout history. Uh, and I think I'm guessing that that it was the law was written to show representation in these smaller places but typically you know if you did it right you know you had to campaign to the it it, it forced candidates to campaign to those smaller communities right. those smaller states yeah because you know if it was just by popular vote then you wouldn't you would you might ignore candidates might ignore those smaller states yeah yeah they might not go to those fairs and eat eat the corn dogs <laughs> that's right all right. Well, hey, uh, Frenchie's chiming in, Mike. Uh, apparently, the last amendment was the 27th Amendment on in 1992. Okay. So not too long ago. And the one before that, he says, 1971. All right. So it seems like we're, we might be due for a new amendment. <laughs> yeah. 
Doug, the 26th Amendment, however, we might remember, was the amendment to the Constitution that lowered the voting age to 18. I think it was a response by, you know, the Vietnam War and people being drafted at 18 who couldn't even oh. vote. Yeah. Oh, that, that's a good point. Yeah. You make me uh, go overseas and fight a war, I should be able to vote on something. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know. My, my, I tend to think we should move to a direct popular election. I think I saw that popular opinion of a popular vote is in favor of moving away from the Electoral College. Maybe this is something we need to discuss as a country going forward. I mean, I don't think we can cover it in this podcast. <laughs> but but I, yeah, I. it seems odd to me that we elect a president, but it's not like one person, one vote. That right. somebody could win you know, a plurality of the votes of all the voters in the country, yet lose the election because of the system of electoral college. So this is something we might have to revisit sometime as on a podcast, but certainly as a, as a country, <laughs> certainly That's as a right. country. Mike, mark my words. I think we will reach a point where the presidential election will be held like something like American Idol. Voting is open right now. Take a look at the details of the voting on the screen. Where <laughs> they'll have two big things that you can text message your vote. Oh. So make sure you pick your favorite and vote for them all night long. We will name your winner. It's true. I think the, the Electoral College feels like a relic. Uh, as you were suggesting earlier, you know, people couldn't get their information. You know, voters didn't have the information yeah. so instantaneously that we get now. Well, I, I think this is certainly um, a discussion that's not going away. And I don't know, but it feels like, to me, at this moment, you know, the the country would like a direct election of president. Um, I think the Electoral College is confusing. And it's difficult to describe. Yeah. I just think direct election by popular vote just seems more simple and transparent. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, the time will tell. We'll see how this all yep. plays out, Mike. Yep. All right. So let's see. Mike, I think with that, we can roll into our film sure. for today, which is uh, Goodwill Hunting. Yes. Have you seen that film? Oh, yes. Oh, good. Oh, yes. Well, so first, let's just start with a couple of facts. The film came out in 1997, and it was nominated for nine Oscars. Yeah. Nine. That's a lot. Nine times. Nine times. Nine times. Right. You know, that makes me wonder. Frenchie, what film has had the most uh, Oscar nominations ever? We'll let him... Dig that up. I'm always curious. But Goodwill Hunting, it won uh, two Oscars. It won yeah. Best Original Screenplay. And can you guess the other one? Um, Best Supporting Actor. Exactly. Very good guess. <laughs> uh, so, yes, the supporting actor, Robin Williams. Yes. He was good. Yeah, he was great. And, um, and that was his only Academy Award win. Oh. And he had been in, uh, you know, he'd been in the industry for a long time. Sure. And, he'd been you know. nominated probably too. Yeah, he was nominated a lot, but this is his, this is his, his big Fisher win. Fisher King, perhaps? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But this was his big win. Yeah. 
You know, I was re-watching the film the other day, and uh, man, you really know a movie is is almost 30 years old um, because Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, they yeah. both were like super thin. <laughs> and young. And young. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell. And so uh, some of the things about the film, you know, um, as you know, it's set, uh, a lot of it is set at MIT. Harvard, Harvard too, right? And Harvard. Yeah. MIT and Harvard. Yeah. And I love that it's set in actual, you know, universities instead of making up fictional ones. <laughs> Although, you know, the other day I, I rewatched that movie, Real Genius with Val Kilmer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he is at what is supposed, what was modeled after Caltech. Yeah. In that film. Uh, although in the movie, they don't say Caltech. They call it Pacific Tech. Okay. So, I mean, come on, just call it damn Caltech. <laughs> So, uh, so I love how Goodwill Hunting it just it says they say MIT and Harvard. Sure. Um, apparently, they had some difficulty. They uh, initially weren't going to be able to film anything at Harvard, and then John Lithgow, who's a Harvard alum, okay, pulled some strings and got him in there. Good for him. So, some other things, as we all know, again, you know, the movie is almost thirty years old, so you know, we don't really need to tell everyone the plot and worry about spoilers, but um, you know, it is about a math genius who comes from a place that is unexpected. Yep. And so Matt Damon, you know, he works as a janitor at MIT and he sees problems up on the chalkboard after hours and he solves them. And then people uh, are super surprised the next day uh, that problems are getting solved and they have no idea who's solving them. Uh, and so I was sort of curious, and it turns out those math problems, uh, they're real. They're real math problems that he's solving. Apparently, they're not as hard as the film makes them out to be. But, you know, the most of the people who watch the movie, it's hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. And the professor uh, in it, you know, he's played by, uh, uh, oof, his name's Stellan, hard. Yeah. Stel Stellan. Skarsgård. Skarsgård. Yeah. Well, I just know him as the Dr. Selvig from Avengers. <laughs> but he uh, he plays the professor at MIT. And um, and I like how, you know, the screenplay references a bunch of stuff from uh, real life. You know, he in in talking about how Matt Damon's character is this uh, super genius, he references a real prodigy from India in 1910, you know, who's who's a fascinating case study as well. Came from nowhere, just stumbled across some math books which, you know, spurned his interest and was just literally able to piece together these things from just a few math books. Like he just had it inherently built into his brain yeah. to understand these things. I just, I love the concept. Um, of the uh, great movie, great script. I really enjoyed it. I, when I mentioned that we'd like to watch it, uh, my wife said, oh, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. So Now, Mike, you being from Boston. Yes. How do you feel the film does uh, representing uh, Boston and the accents and the area? I think it did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think it. I think it did. I, I. I know. I. I know. At one time, I thought Robin Williams wasn't uh, didn't do a great job when I first saw it years ago. I thought yeah. Robin Williams, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck are from Boston, so they yeah. were great. They knew how to do the accent, but uh, Robin Williams. Not so much, but after watching it recently, I thought, you know what? Uh, he was supposed to be a Harvard grad, and I think that that changes. He wasn't the working class kid that he grew up as. 
So I think that people's accents change, you know, depending ah, on their education okay. and their world experiences. He had been, you know, the character had been, grew up in South Boston, but I just thought, no, he probably did sound like that. He probably didn't have the the wicked smart, you know, Boston <laughs> accent Yeah. Uh, from his childhood. He probably did, you know, evolve a little bit. All right. And so, Mike, let me ask you, like in the film, the, uh, a lot of the characters are like, ah, you're from Southie. Like, is that a thing from Southie? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. In fact, um, it's, it is, you know, like the movie, it's a working class neighborhood that's yeah. right in Boston. It's very, you know, close to the center of Boston. But but uh, and it looks exactly like like it looks in the movie. I mean, it's I think they filmed they must have filmed that. Yeah. That part, the exterior shots. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, one of the things I noted, which made me think they're doing a great job of representing the Boston area, is one of the characters has a T-shirt that says, I hate L.A. Yes, I saw that, and, too. Yeah. And I've known folks from Boston, and that is a huge thing. They yeah. really hate L.A. <laughs> yeah. And that goes back to the Lakers and the Celtics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that that, that was great. A great rivalry back in the day, which seems like it wouldn't be. Most rivalry, Pittsburgh and Cleveland and the Yankees and the Red Sox, they're sort of in close proximity. But Boston and L.A., they're as far away as you can get pretty much, you know. And yet, (laughs) because they seem to end up in the finals in the NBA so many times, they were big rivals. So Yeah, yeah. Just circling circling back to uh, the guy who plays the professor. You know, I was rewatching the film and it was interesting. I, I noticed a few things that I hadn't really noticed before, but um, there's one scene early in the film where the professor, the professor is at an outdoor alumni lunch. Some students come up to him and say, hey, you know, your problem on the chalkboard got solved. Yeah. You know, at this point, the professor was already being depicted as basically pretentious, you yes. know, cocky. But now it like it shifted gears in that moment where he now yeah. starts to come off as like, in my opinion, as like a predator because he hits on the female student. The oh. female student comes up to him and says, you know, oh, the problem was solved. And he says to her, uh, hey, you know, it's a Saturday unless you want to have a drink with me. <laughs> <laughs> like he kind of hits on her. But, you know, she has a classic line. She says uh, she kind of laughs and says, oh, <laughs> maybe later. So uh, back to the problem. totally deflects him and then later in the movie uh he's waiting in the hallway while will you know matt damon is is um having a session with robin williams he's waiting in the hallway and he's hitting on uh, another female student yeah uh this time at a different college because uh robin williams is at a different college yeah and you know some other things in the film that i love is the uh, banter between the four group of friends so you know it's matt damon and, and ben affleck yeah um they get to play the two main guy characters in in the in the buddy on the buddy side of it, and um, I love how you know they're all working construction, and so they pick each other up in the morning. Yeah, and uh, you know Ben and Matt are in the front seat of the car like all the time because yeah. they're the alpha males, right? Yes. And then their two buddies are like stuck in the back seat, and uh, and they're back there like complaining. Like they, I love the scene where they stop and pick up some uh, food. Yeah. And um, and the one kid in the back's like, hey, give me my sandwich. And Ben Affleck's like, uh, you know, no, I'm going to put your sandwich on layaway. <laughs> yeah. Puts it up on the dashboard. He finally gets his sandwich, right? And then they're driving down the street. And uh, Matt Damon's like, hey, 
there's that kid I hate. Pull over. <laughs> and they go to get right. in the fight, right? The big fight scene. Yeah. And the kid in the back says, uh, guys, wh- why do we got to fight now? I just got my snacks. <laughs> yeah. That's nice now. So I love those those scenes with, with the guys. Some other pieces of the film that I love. So, you know, Matt Damon, he's a troubled, uh, he's a troubled youth, right? Troubled childhood. Yes. Yeah. But a genius. And he's got, he's, he's getting the help from Robin Williams, who's a therapist, to work through these things. And uh, before he meets Robin Williams, the professor puts him in touch with some other therapists. So he goes through like four other therapists who just after one meeting refused to continue. <laughs> yeah. Um, and did you notice one of those therapists is uh, George Plimpton? Yes. And George Plimpton was really known back in the day for his sports writing, I believe, and writing in general. Yes. And, yeah. But he's known as a writer and he, and he actually went to Harvard. Yeah. But yeah. I love that scene where Matt Damon's interacting with him and, and he's, you know, he's this, he plays kind of a stuffy, you know, yes. upper crust therapist. And he's like, no, listen here. Uh, I want us to agree that there'll be no more shenanigans. Uh, <laughs> Ali who? Tomfoolery. Uh, no more tomfoolery. <laughs> <laughs> there are no more shenanigans. No more tomfoolery. No more ballyhoo. <laughs> I love that scene. Another interesting thing is, you know, uh, Minnie Driver in the film, um, she's the love interest with Matt Damon. And then towards the end of the film and after the film, they dated briefly. Mm-hmm. So that always adds a little extra reality yeah. to the, the scenes in the right the movie. And, um, you know, Matt Damon's character being a genius sort of has a photographic memory. And I love the scene in the film where uh, Minnie Driver is trying to trip him up and, and get him to answer truthfully questions. Yeah. And she says, you know... Uh, Tell me about your family. And he's like, oh, I got 12 uh, brothers. You know? <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, really? What are their names? And I love he like rattles off Ricky, Dicky, Mikey, Billy, Johnny, Polly. Like he's just rattling names <laughs> yeah. up. And she goes, okay, great, great. Now tell me those names again. <laughs> and he just like perfectly from memory rattles them off again. Mikey, Ricky, Danny, Terry, Mikey, Davey, Timmy, Tommy, Joey, Robbie, Johnny, and Brian. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I loved Ben Affleck in the film. I thought he did a great job, you know, playing the the buddy. I love the scene where after the halfway part of the film, Matt Damon starts to get job offers from yeah. these big companies. <laughs> and but but he's not at a mental point where he's like willing to even entertain them or interview them, but they're pressuring him to come in for job interviews, so he sends his buddy, you know, Ben Affleck who's just a construction worker, sends him into these interviews. Yeah. And Affleck uh, makes the most of it. He goes into these interviews and he says, all right, boys, uh, before I start to talk to you, I'm going to need a retainer. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody in this town works without a retainer, guys. And they're they're like looking at each other like, what? And he goes, come on, retainer. And and they're saying, well, uh, I don't know if we, he like rubs his fingers together and he sits back in his chair and he says, retainer. And he gets he gets two hundred dollars, Mike. Right, right. Yeah, I think you know. I think that's a lesson for a lot of us uh, in our next job interview. <laughs> you know, just try it. Just keep saying retainer, and you might get two hundred bucks. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about Robin Williams. Yeah. So um, those are just some tremendous scenes with him and Matt Damon. Oh yeah. So Robin Williams, at this point in his life, Mike, he's no stranger 
to, uh, you know, in his own personal life to troubles. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, he's battled his own demons. And, um, so in these scenes, you know, I'm sure he pulls on that experience and life, life experience because they just really are powerful and well done. Yep. And, you know, specifically the, the bench scene where they're sitting out and, uh, which is shot in Boston common. Is it Boston common or commons? You write Boston common. They're in the public garden. They call it public gardens. That's right. And uh, in fact, that bench they're sitting at, I think it later got dedicated to Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can sit there if you're ever in the area. You know, I like that scene because, first of all, um, the bi- a big part of it is a no-cut scene. You know, oh. they just say action and he does his long, uh, you know, monologue w- with no cuts. That's always an impressive thing to see in film. Yeah. You know, I, I myself, Mike, have some personal Robin Williams stories um, because I live in the San Francisco Bay area where oh, yeah. he lived for many years. Yeah. You know, I have a good friend of mine who's a, uh, who's a big jogger. He loves jogging around the area. He was going for a run down in what we call the Marina green. And he said that at, and it was a, like a beautiful day and he's jogging down, uh, you know, along the beach. And he said, every time someone would be passing him, you know, so he'd be, you know, he'd be running in one lane and people would be running at him and passing him. They would all look at him and and have a big smile on their face. And and my <laughs> friend was thinking, oh, I, I must really look good today. <laughs> and and girls would be like totally smiling at him. And he's just thinking, oh, man, I am on my game. Right. Right. And then he stopped to take a break. And uh, who should pass him? Who was right behind him the whole time? <laughs> Robin Williams. Wow. All these people were like smiling at Robin Williams. And my friend totally <laughs> thought it was him. <laughs> let's just note that Ben Affleck, you know, he works construction with Matt Damon and, you know, frequently he's telling Matt Damon, dude, you got to get out of here. You've got, you know, you're, you've got such brain power and such opportunity. You can't just be doing construction with me. One of the things I look forward to every single, you know, workday when I go to pick you up is a part of me hopes that you're not there anymore. You know, that you've moved on. And it's a touching scene. And then in the end of the film, that's exactly what happens. Ben Affleck pulls yeah. up and he looks in there and he gets a big smile on his face once he yeah. realized that Matt Damon's gone. Yes. And Casey in the back seat jumps out with a huge grin <laughs> on his face. He's so happy because now he's moved up to the front seat. Yeah. <laughs> Take he's moving on up. He's moving on up, Mike. Yep. Moving on but just from start to finish, the film is... Uh, I mean, it really deserved the awards and nominations that it got. Yeah. And um, and it is a classic. Great movie. Great movie. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, hey. Frenchie is now replying, Mike, um, as to what film has had the most nominations. Turns out it was the uh, 1997 Titanic movie. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it had 14 nominations. Yeah. Probably oh a lot of special effects. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's going to be beaten anytime soon. 14 nominations. <laughs> I know. Yeah. King of the world, Mike. I think that is our summary of the film. I think we've done it some justice here. Yeah. All right. For all of us here at Politics and a Movie, thank you for listening. And you can check out our website at politicsandamovie.com. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Doug. And thank you, Frenchie. Au revoir, everybody.
do you like them apples?